Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. It's fair to say that today, most of our controversies are about morality. We disagree about questions of efficiency and democracy, but across political aisles, we also disagree about what's right to do and who we're becoming as a people. So how can we have productive debates with people whose worldviews are very different from ours? Today, I'm joined by Adam McLeod, who's a professor of law at Faulkner University. He's here to talk about his new book titled The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal. In this book and in our conversation this week, Adam examines the roots of our disagreements and advances a proposal for providing a more secure foundation for civil rights. I'm hoping this episode offers a bit of a break from the constant news cycle about coronavirus. So if you like this episode, go ahead and share it with a friend who's maybe also kept at home right now. Act in Line is available on Google Play, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever podcasts are found. Today, I am happy to welcome Adam McLeod onto the podcast to discuss with me his newest book, The Age of Selfies, Reasoning About Rights When the Stakes Are Personal. Adam is a professor of law at Faulkner University. He's also a Thomas Edison Fellow in the Center for the Protection of Intellectual Property at George Mason University. Adam, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Caroline. I really appreciate it. Adam, in your new book, you attempt to answer a huge question, which is why is our discourse across a political spectrum so difficult today? You also gave a recent lecture here at Acton where you broke down some of the main arguments in this book. Um, and for our listeners, I'll link that video in the show notes for this episode, um, because I think that your lecture really summarizes the thesis really well. So to start, I'm going to ask you to explain the main thesis of your book. Um, you begin by saying that the reason that so many of us just talk over each other today is because we express our disagreements in moral terms, but we don't understand moral arguments. Can you dissect this for me? What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think it is one of the causes. It's certainly not the only cause, of course. Um, there's been a lot written by other people about you know, how technology alters our interactions um, you know the loss of manners and um, and just a sort of civic um, attitude, uh, but I do think that one of the things that we've not paid sufficient attention to is if you listen to the rhetoric uh, of our public discourse, particularly the people who tend to attract the most attention in various uh, media. Um, you hear them speaking not in terms often of uh, economic efficiency or democracy or sort of neutral terms. Rather, you hear them speaking in terms of right and wrong and good and evil. So this was a way of thinking or speaking publicly, which until recently was largely associated with the religious right. You'd hear uh, say, uh, conservative evangelical intellectuals or public figures speak about um, what is right and wrong to do. This is you know, often the way that um, uh, the abortion issue was discussed on the right, for example. But you wouldn't often hear it from, um, from liberals and people um, on the left. But increasingly, we find people on the left speaking about 
um, public issues in terms of right and wrong. And so if you think about Bernie Sanders, for example, um, and some of his rhetoric that he's used to describe what he perceives to be the injustice of income inequality, he's not shy about speaking about it in moral terms. He says that it is it is wrong for there to be billionaires who, you know, in his judgment are, are unjustly hoarding wealth that, um, that uh, can and should be um, distributed uh, more evenly. Um, so it's not just that he's making an argument about, uh, uh, say, people who are wealthy infringing other people's civil rights. Um, he's very much speaking in terms of what is right and wrong to do. Um, and yet you don't get a really good sense that Bernie Sanders has um, thought through what that might mean. Why is it that it's wrong for one person, say a Mike Bloomberg, to have a lot of money, and for another person, say someone who lives um, in Appalachia, um, not to have very much? And there's a great tradition about this, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, about how to think about um, uh, uh, right and wrong and justice and injustice. Um, but But you don't get any of that sort of underlying reasoning from the sort of discourse that you see on on television these days. Hmm. Well, I think it's uncommon to hear that problems in our discourse partially stem from the fact that we don't reason through morality in our arguments very well. So why why this thesis? How did you arrive at this? Well, it's, uh, it's naturally the, the, the use of moral reasoning in um, legal arguments and in um, political arguments is something that I've studied for a long time, thought a lot about. Um, the role you might say that morality plays in making arguments about, um, for example, civil rights um, and and which civil rights. Uh, ought to be secured by the Constitution and what those civil rights mean. Um, often, increasingly, we have uh, controversies about the meaning of civil rights um, that uh, can't be uh, resolved except on on moral grounds. So uh, just one, one example, um, if you think about what it means to have, say, equal protection of the law, we used to think what that means is that you don't discriminate against someone because of their race or ethnicity or sex. So as long as you're treating everyone equally in terms of their access to, say, opportunities, um, as long as you are not, uh, as long as you're refraining from affirmatively discriminating against people on these illicit grounds, um, you're 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 uh, you're acting, you're treating them equally. Now. Um, when when people say, uh, look, you're you're denying someone the equal protection of the law, you're discriminating against them. Increasingly, what the, increasingly what they mean is um, that you are not affirming in them uh, some moral claim that they are asserting. For example, uh, that the the wedding vendor who says, in, in good conscience, I can't bake a cake or arrange flowers for a same-sex wedding. Um, that person is not discriminating because of the sexual orientation of the customer. Uh, they're perfectly willing to serve people who identify as same-sex attracted. Um, they, their motivation is uh, they can't affirm something that they believe to be false, that marriage is something other than a man woman union. And on the old idea of equal protection, we could just resolve this on the basis of the, the civil rights that everybody 
everybody has. Property rights mean that if I'm owning a business, I get to decide which messages I'm going to communicate. Um, and equal protection and, uh, and non-discrimination laws mean that um, you're not going to discriminate against me because I identify as same-sex attracted. But on the new understanding of equal liberties and equal rights, um, we very quickly get into these moral questions about the value of free speech, about the meaning of marriage, about the meaning of sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and so it's no longer possible for us to have these conversations uh, without, without uh, addressing these underlying moral concerns. So it seems, I think maybe a knee-jerk reaction to this would be to say, well, is our problem that, you know, our political language is filled with moral arguments as much as the problem is just moral relativity? Yeah. Well, I think it, I think it's true that our rhetoric and our language is getting ahead of our ability to have rational moral conversations. Um, and so the, the, the sort of second part of the thesis of the book, which you which you accurately stated earlier, is, uh, so the first part is we, increasingly you hear people in the public square making moral arguments rather than just, you know, more neutral arguments grounded in democracy or efficiency or civil liberties. Um, the second part is we're not very good at it, <laughs> making these moral arguments. Um, and we, we're just not well equipped to do it. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is um, what, what might be called moral relativism or subjectivism, um, this idea that each of us gets to create his or her own moral reality. Um, this is most famously expressed in um, the Supreme Court's uh, 1992 abortion uh, decision, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, where um, Justice Kennedy, writing for the court, uh, opines that, uh, that liberty means that each of us gets to define his or her own concept of meaning and uh, the meaning of life and so forth. Um, so that's, that's one part of the problem is uh, everyone has their own moral reality, their own moral code, um, and so there's no uh, objective ground on which we can all meet. I think another part of the problem is moral education used to be a staple of civic education. Um, and so it used to be the case that people would pass into adulthood having read, say, um, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures and Aristotle and Shakespeare and uh, a lot of really formative texts um, and spent time thinking about important moral questions, about the virtues, um, about uh, moral uh, rules, where they come from, the goods that they're grounded in. Um, and uh, it's just not done very much very, you know, anymore. And so I think a lot of our, um, particularly younger people, but you also see it in a lot of public intellectuals um, and, and civic leaders and political leaders, uh, just don't do a very good job of expressing themselves on these, on these moral questions just because they've not been really well equipped to, to think critically about them. Well, let's let's tease that out a little bit more. So in order to think more critically about how to reason well about morality, how do we get there? Uh, you explain, you know, many phases of how we get there through your book. But can you break down maybe a few of what you think are some of the most important phases of this project? Yeah, great. So the, I think the first phase is we need to do a much better job of understanding each other. And what I mean by that is when someone expresses a moral view, um, our tendency more often than not is to uh, to react to that 
statement of a moral view from our own perspective. So, for example, you see um, people who express um, concerns about the natural environment, people who express concerns, say, about pollution or global warming, and they do it in moral terms. They say, uh, you know, the moral thing to do is to have, say, cap-and-trade policies um, or to have stricter uh, uh, enforcement of the Clean Water Act. Um, and then you, the, the reaction that you often see uh, from people who disagree with that position is they'll say, well, you don't understand that um, by calling for that, you're calling, what you're really calling for is expansion of the federal government or unconstitutional overreach by the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, it's not that that's not true, that that's not entailed in the view, uh, the moral view that we need stronger, say, environmental protection uh, actions and laws. Um, but that's, that's not really what the person is expressing. What they're expressing is a moral concern that we take seriously our stewardship of the natural environment. It entails uh, often these other downstream implications, but that's not what the person's intending. Um, and so we can, we can, we can't, it's fair and, and important to have a conversation about the constitutional and legal and, and prudential and practical implications of these moral claims. Um, but, but I think before we get to that conversation, we, we really need to, to make sure that we understand and are not misrepresenting the underlying moral, moral concern. You see it on the other side, um, of uh, the political spectrum on the abortion issue. Um, uh, you know, pe people who are pro-life uh, have a genuine moral conviction that, that human life is valuable in and of itself um, and that a human being is a person from conception to natural death. Um, and you don't often see much recognition of this view uh, from people who are pro-abortion rights. Uh, instead, what you hear is all the downstream implications of that view. Well, you want to deprive women of access to personal autonomy and, and, uh, and health care and so forth. Uh, well, that, that's fair to have a conversation about uh, the effect of abortion restrictions on the personal autonomy of the mother, um, but that's not the heart of the concern. So let's address the heart of the concern first, and then we can move on to the, to the, to the other implications. So it seems a key of this is resisting to make assumptions or jump ahead and ascribe intentions uh, to people making certain arguments that we disagree with. That's well said. I think that's I think that's right. So then the next phase is um, to I think recover um, what right. What rights, and this is a this is a sort of the central theme of the book, the central part of the book. Um, often, our moral language is expressed in terms of our rights. I have a right to health care, or the ch unborn child has a right to life, or the right thing to do is uh, to give the Environmental Protection Agency stronger enforcement over, say, um, uh, uh, waters of the United States. Um, so we often, in, in our sort of American way, but I think this is true also outside the United States in, in sort of Western discourse generally, express these questions in terms of rights. Um, what we mean by rights usually today is what I'm entitled to. Um, and so I'm going to insist upon my rights, meaning I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to get what's coming to me. Um, but uh, that further exacerbates the problem, of course, um, because moral discourse expressed in terms of rights, in terms of my rights, what, I, what I'm entitled to, um, both raises the stakes um, and makes the discussion intensely personal. 
Um, and I think part of what we need to do is to reframe our rights talk uh, so that we recover an older tradition about thinking about rights, which is that rights refer not to what I'm entitled to, but rather to what is the right thing to do. And so what is, um, what is a right? It is uh, treating someone or acting in such a way that I do what is right according to either the moral requirements that are applicable to me from customary norms or from natural law um, or the legal requirements, um, constitutional requirements. Um, and so if you think about a right as, as being a direction for my choices and actions, the right thing for me to do with respect to someone is not discriminate against them because of their race, for example. Now, that entails that they have a right not to be discriminated against. But the right is not primarily about what they're entitled to. It's primarily a direction for my action. How should I treat them? And if each of us is focused that way, um, we, we find that uh, we're going to take our duties and our responsibilities a lot more seriously. And that opens up opportunities to talk about moral responsibility and, and where they come from and where those responsibilities come from. And in your explanation there, I see more of the, I see the connection between how when thinking about rights, it can be reflected in our quote unquote age of selfies. <laughs> when we think about rights, we shouldn't be necessarily first and foremost thinking about what we ourselves are owed, but how in uh, a land with, you know, pluralism, uh, we are to think of how we might respect someone with whom we disagree. That's right. And so then the next phase of the project uh, in our land of pluralism is to recognize that a lot of these questions there is no one uniquely right answer. Um, and so we can lower the stakes um, uh, sort of the next phase of the project um, by recognizing that a lot of what is right to do can actually differ from group to group and community to community. So, for example, um, you know, I tell my students, uh, uh, I use sort of a, a silly example, but um, if, you, if, if I were to ask you what is the, uh, the correct answer to the question, uh, how much should a married couple filing jointly earning $122,000 a year uh, be charged for marginal tax rate? And you'd say, well, I need to know more about that, right? I need to know um, how much someone who's making $22,000 a year uh, pays. I need to know what would, what would be their tax rate if they were um, not filing jointly. So these are very contextual based questions. There's no sort of one unique right answer. Um, that's actually the case um, with a lot of these controversies. Um, it might be, for example, to, to return to the environmental concern, it might be that the Environmental Protection Agency is the best agency to prevent pollution of our waters. Um, but it might actually be that there are, can be plural solutions, that we can have um, uh, private easements, for example, and other mechanisms of private law and property law which can be used to protect waters. It might be that there's a role for states to play and local governments to play in deciding how to steward our waters. Um, and so it might not be a simply black and white um, uh, problem uh, that it, we're doing the wrong thing, say, by curtailing the, the or limiting the authority of, of the federal government um, over these resources. It's even the case that on questions where everybody agrees there is a uniquely right and wrong answer, um, that there's room for reasonable disagreement. So take abortion. Pro-life people and pro-abortion rights people, um, both sides, they, they obviously disagree about the underlying 
question, the justice of the act of abortion. Um, but they both agree that there's a right answer. Pro-life people say, no, abortion is wrong. And pro-abortion rights people say, no, to restrict access to abortion is wrong. Um, you hear this, for example, from um, uh, the, the Georgia uh, candidate for governor, Stacey Abrams, who's been talked about as a potential running mate on the Democratic ticket. Um, she doesn't describe uh, abortion as, in terms of neutral civil liberties. She speaks of it in moral terms. She favors abortion rights because she thinks it's wrong to burden the autonomy of the mother. So, so both sides agree that this is a, that the underlying question is a black and white question. There's, there's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. But how to respond to that do we do, do we uh, even if you're pro-life, for example, do you do that by um, punishing the abortionist, by uh, imposing sanctions on the mother, by p- placing health and safety restrictions which limit access to abortion but don't completely prohibit them? Um, those are much more harder, you know, harder, much more complicated questions. Mm-hmm. Now, I think a key also to understanding how we are to think about rights is natural law. Uh, Many of our listeners who are Catholic will understand and have a point of reference to understand what natural law is as it plays a large role in Catholic social teaching. Um, We probably have many listeners still who aren't familiar with natural law. Um, And you did frame your talk uh, about rights in the natural law theory. Can you put that in a nutshell for us? What is natural law? Yeah, natural law are the reasons that all of us have for acting in certain ways toward other people, um, ourselves and other people. So natural law means that this is a law that, uh, or these are, these are reasons, goods, rules, rights, um, uh, and other reasons that we have for acting with respect to other people simply because they're people, because they're human beings. Regardless whether where you live, regardless what your your citizenship is, so um, so the rights that we get from natural law are those rights that are universal. Um, the right not to be killed, right, uh, is is part of the natural law. The right not to be defamed, the right not to be raped. Um, these are important rights that everybody has simply by virtue of being a human being, whether or not the the laws of their state or their nation. Um, uh, actually protect them uh, from these from these wrongs. So the idea of natural law is simply that there are things that we uh, things that we should be uh, pursuing that are good, things like knowledge and friendship, um, and that these are good for everybody. And there's things that we should never be willing to do, like murder and defamation, um, because these are inherently harmful to people. Um, and it's not contingent upon any particular laws or any particular uh, government. These, uh, these things are true for everybody. Now, we're going to move on, and I want you to tell a story that I was – I just thought was really interesting at the talk you gave. Um, you told a story of one time that you were at a law school to serve on a panel as, as you say, it, basically the token conservative among law professors, and it was a debate on same-sex marriage. And you talked about how uh, the students reacted and interacted with you in that debate. Can you tell that story? Yeah, it was uh, uh, it was at sort of the height of the um, controversy preceding the Supreme Court's redefinition of marriage in uh, 2015 in the case of Burgerfell versus Hodges. So this is just before that, a couple of years before that, uh, I was invited by a uh, an LGTB uh, activist, a student activist group uh, at a law school to come and um, and you know present the unpopular opinion that um, uh, that it's rational for states to define. 
uh, and rational and constitutional for states to define marriage as a man-woman union. Um, and I, I said I'd be willing to do that, and I, I made the argument um, why uh, why states could reasonably um, uh, draw this conclusion and protect uh, protect that definition in, in their laws. Um, and it was evident to me in that event, as it had been in, on other occasions, um, that the students had just never encountered the argument for natural marriage before. Um, and so what they had been willing to attribute to bigotry or ignorance um, before the event began, um, very quickly they had to contend with the idea, no, actually there might be reasons. For example, the one that I, I discussed at that uh, event was the right of a child to be connected to um, her, her natural parents. And what becomes of that right, which is a you know, fundamental right in our legal tradition, uh, when we redefine uh, marriage in such a way that um, it no longer necessarily uh, includes a mother and a father. Um, and, you know, that whatever you might, whether or not you're persuaded by that argument, it's a, it's, a, it's a serious argument. Well, the students had never encountered it before. And so after the event, I had a, quite a crowd of students come up to me. Um, but very quickly, they went beyond that. Um, their real concern, what they were really sort of surprised by, I think, was this idea that there are certain rights which do not depend upon laws and governments, that there is a natural law and that we can reason about uh, these universal truths. Um, and they, had, they, they were really sort of taken aback by that idea. Uh, it was pretty clear to me that they had just never encountered it before. They had never apparently thought about the implications, say, of you know, the Declaration of Independence, which makes the claim that certain rights are grounded in natural law and, and that governments are instituted to protect those rights, not the other way around. Um, they never thought about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, uh, where he expresses his civil disobedience in terms of natural law. And these other great it, texts and expressions of, of natural law and natural rights principles in our tradition. Um, and after the event, actually, when I got back to my law school, I had a very, very nice thank you note from, from that student group thanking me for being willing to, to be there. And I think those sorts of opportunities, um, I think, are, are open to us. Uh, if we can just um, uh, think about these moral questions in terms of how are we both going to be able to access, access these truth claims? Um, how, how are we going to express this in such a way that we can find what's universal and common and shared between us um, and then reason from there? Uh, it's a challenge, but I think that's what we need to get better at. Yeah. I am going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here because there is – almost a, uh, a war-like mentality that I have heard from a lot of people regarding politics and ideology. And, you know, my own natural first reaction to this would be to say, you know, in order to really improve our discourse, we have to first stop the snowballing of moral relativism. And some of these people are just advocating for a breakdown of family structure and just cannot be reasoned with. Some views just cannot be reconciled. Um, and a lot of people would, you know, also say that this pace of progressive ideology today demands action and not civil discourse. So what are your thoughts on this? Do you think that your call to establishing this common ground in a call to civil discourse hinders actionable defenses of conservative thought, or is there a nuanced compatibility there? 
Yeah, I would say that it's certainly the case that there are people that you'll just never persuade, right? And this is true um, across the ideological spectrum. There are people on the right who can't be persuaded, just as there are people on the left who can't be persuaded. Um, and there are certain people that um, that you just you're just not going to be able to reason with. Um, uh, and and you know, on the left, I think the sort of the the biggest uh, source of this that we see today um, is this idea. Of, of identity, uh, personal identity or intersectionality, um, that uh, who I truly am is not determined by my embodied nature or by, um, by universal principles, but um, about my, my subjective expression or my expression of my subjective experience of, uh, of, of, of my identity. And if you don't affirm that, you're causing me dignitary harm or you're discriminating against me or you're acting unjustly. So yeah, that idea is, is um, you're not going to be able to reason with someone who thinks that way because of course um, the truth for them is their own personal experience. And I, I, I don't experience their experience. Uh, so there's no, there's sort of no objective ground in which we can both stand. Um, so I don't mean to deny that there are real problems um, but here's what I've found. I've found that a lot of students express this sort of sub moral subjectivism or moral relativism or intersectionality just, it's bec just because it's, it's what they've known. It's what they've grown up amongst. It's what they've been educated in, and they just don't know any different. Um, and what I found, and even in a room full of people who think they believe that way, there are a lot of people who... Uh, are going to be open to the idea of natural law when they first hear an articulation of it. Um, and, you know, I, my view is um, our job, if we believe in natural law and the great tradition and that there are natural rights, um, is to hold that view out in the way that's clearest and, um, and most attractive as we possibly can, and then let the chips fall where they may. Some people are going to reject it just because um, they don't. They don't want to believe that there are universal moral truths. Um, other people, I think, are just going to be encountering it for the first time, and they might need a little bit of time to to let it soak in, and they might it might alter their their thinking over um, over a period of time rather than immediately. Um, you might never hear from them again. You might not uh, sort of have a sense of how how it affects them. Um, but I think people are often more open to it than we assume. Um, they're just not hearing a very good articulation of it from, unfortunately, from our political leaders, from talking heads on cable news or from, you know, op-eds they're going to read um, in our newspapers. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think maybe one way of looking at what you're arguing for here, and correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I think in a way it all boils down to um, apologetics. <laughs> and I think if we want to change or improve our communication if we want to bolster institutions and civil society, this means understanding not only what we believe and why we believe it, but also what someone who disagrees with us believes and why they believe it. And like you said, establishing a common ground there. Um, but, you know, we can't do this well if we don't understand what the other person believes about morality and objectivity. So it really starts there. Yeah, I think apologetics is, um, is, a, is a fine framework for thinking about this. Um, you know, I think w one of the great... Uh, of course, uh, Christian thinkers um, in the last century or so who's talked about natural law, of course, was C.S. Lewis um, and a great apologist for the Christian faith who in, in mere Christianity and in the abolition of man and in other works uh, made the case that there is this natural law. 
um, and we can we can uh, refer to it as a means of uh, of talking together about really really important really really hard controversial questions and so um, we can talk about, for example, um, the the importance of, um, say, environmental protection, or the the importance of uh, having protections for the health of of mothers and of uh, unborn children um, in, uh, in in cases of abortion. Um, and we can talk about the important goods that are at stake in those uh, controversies um, in such a way that we can come to a better understanding of why people would have differing views and why people would feel so strongly um, about those views. So I think the discipline of Christian apologetics, for those of you, for those who've been through that sort of training or are used to thinking in those terms, is very, very amenable to what I'm describing. Um, uh, you know, you're, you're taking sort of things that, say, your, your faith tradition teaches you are true, um, and thinking about the ways of expressing those in, in, in more universal terms. Um, and finding common ground with people who don't share your faith convictions or don't agree to or assent to the authority of your sacred texts. Well, Adam, I don't think that we could end on a better note. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening today. If you'd like to reach our podcast team here to let me know what you think of the show or even suggest topics you'd like to hear covered, email me at actinline at actin.org. Actinline is available on Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. 